I ask guys a lot of time, like, you know, talk about a time, you know, in your career, you know, where you've gone through some adversity, right. And you've kind of been humbled a little bit, or it might define who you are as a person right now. And that's where you really see the walls come down. And I think you start to see the team sort of developing because it's one thing to pay the lip service and talk about, you know, the sacrifice, humility, accountability. But, you know, can we all get to know each other with that being really the foundation and background of what we're building on? Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of the London Lions, fresh off a championship season in the British BBL, Ryan Schmidt. Coach Schmidt is here today to discuss the foundational pillars of a new team, making the puzzle pieces fit, long DHOs and pitches, and we talk how players retain information and pick and roll efficiency during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Costa Rica, Spain, Italy, Australia, South Africa, We're excited to announce our newest partnership with the world leader in international sport tours, Beyond Sports. Founder and former college and pro basketball coach, Josh Erickson, and his team of former athletes have built the go-to company for coaches looking to take their programs abroad. From the travel and accommodations to excursions and service learning opportunities, Beyond Sports does it all. For more information and to learn why more than 650 universities have trusted Beyond Sports, visit beyondsportstours.com and tell them Slapping Glass sent you. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Ryan Schmidt. Coach, congrats on a great first season, and we're really excited to have you here today. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. I'm a big fan of what you guys do. And to be completely honest, your podcast has helped me quite a bit in, in my coaching career so far. So appreciate it. And it's good to be here. We appreciate thank that. Thank you, Coach. Yeah, thank you very much. Coach, so a terrific first season for you as you guys you know, win the BBL, your first year with London Lions. And we wanted to dive in with the topic of making all the puzzle pieces fit. You know, you take over, it's a brand new roster. Everything's new. You're new. Players are new. And your thoughts on how to make all that fit together. I know that's a big conversation and we want to basically start with a starting point for you. When you took over and you looked at it, you looked at the roster and who you are as a coach, how you started to think about and figure out where you were going to start with everything. Yeah, no, this is a fun topic. I wish you guys did a podcast on this before I took over. It would have been helpful. It always starts on the defensive end. And, you know, fortunately, And unfortunately, you know, I was coaching this past summer, you know, in the CBL, the Canadian Elite Basketball League. It was a little tough because I didn't have that time to really prepare and spend time with staff out here in London. And, you know, you're doing a lot of Zoom calls and so forth, but you kind of have to hit the ground running a little bit. And again, like you said, it's a brand new roster and, you know, we're competing in Euro Cup, which as you guys both know, and a very high level. And there's a lot of teams, you know, pretty much majority of the teams outside of us all have some sort of continuity, you know, that they're going into the season with. And we didn't. I think, you know, the starting point was really trying to get to know these guys, you know, as players, as people, and kind of really laying out the groundwork and foundation of what we're trying to do here. You know, getting them to not only just buy in, but completely understand the vision of, you know, our ownership, management, you know, us and and what we're trying to do as far as growing the game here in the UK. You know, obviously you want to win, but that was kind of the starting point is, again, you got to get to know everybody. You've got the fun part and challenging, though, is the coach. You have 15 new players that are all coming in from you know previous teams and they had other roles. And that is challenging at times because you have a lot of alphas in the room at the same time that you know all are trying to kind of solidify their spot as far as what their role is going to be. I remember asking this question a couple of times back during the season. If you look back on it, like what would you say was probably the most challenging? I just said time, right? You just didn't have enough time, I felt like. And it's because once that first game starts, they don't stop. They just keep coming and coming and coming. And, you know, it's a lot of travel and you're having injuries that you're having to deal with. Again, it's just really kind of sticking to what's the game plan you throw as a coach. I think for me, like I kind of alluded to at the very beginning of this question was, you know, defensively. Let's form an identity on the defensive end. Offensively, as we all know as coaches, 
that's usually going to be take a little bit more time to catch up because there's a little bit more chemistry and cohesion that you're trying to work through. But I think for us, can we establish some sort of an identity, having a brand new team? And, you know, I wanted that to be on the defensive end. Just we wanted to be a team that was really difficult to play against. And so that was kind of the starting point for us. And then again, just offensively, it was, you know, we can probably dive into this a lot more, but just because it's such a broad topic. But I think on the offensive side of it was really just learning the players. And, you know, I'm a big believer in, in trying to kind of raise the level and, and get guys to play at the highest level they've ever played at. And it's kind of, you know, my background on player development side when I was with the Toronto Raptors organization and, you know, in the G League and you're trying to help guys, whether it's, you know, moving from being on the bench to getting the rotation, getting the rotation to being a starting unit and same thing in the CBL. And, you know, I know some coaches maybe don't believe in that. You kind of, hey, this is going to be your role early on, you know, and that's fine. I just, for me, it's, you know, again, understanding that we had a lot of guys coming here that had never played in Euro Cup before and, you know, British guys or, or whatever. And so we knew we were going to need them to play, you know, the best basketball that they've played in order for us to compete. You know, and I think if you look at right now, it's interesting, you know, an organization that I follow pretty closely, it's probably the best at doing this is the Miami Heat and, you know, getting guys to play kind of above their level. And then you're going to kind of take some licks as you go through this and, you know, getting guys that you might think might be able to play you know, in pick and roll, maybe a month in, you're understanding like they're struggling with this a little bit. So how do we adapt and how do we, you know, kind of help them? For us, it was unfortunate. Our starting point guard, Tariq Phillip, went down with a knee injury literally the very first day of practice. So, you know, you kind of go in to the start of the season, having an idea of, okay, this is how I want to play. And then all of a sudden, you know, you lose your starting point guard, who, which was one of the few guys that had played at Euro Cup level. And so as a head coach, you're kind of looking around and be like, all right, adapt and adjust quickly. Before we get to some of the X's and O stuff and kind of some of the on the court things, briefly touching back on something you mentioned about when you first got the job and you sat down with management and the vision that they have for London building basketball in, you know, one of the best cities in the world where it historically hasn't had a team and what the vision was and, and how you tried to think about that as far as the product you put on the court. Great question. It's something I gave a lot of thought to because you know, it was more taking this job and beginning the mission of what, you know, our ownership triple seven was trying to do out here. Again, you're trying to grow game. You're in football country here and the premier league is, you know, the NBA of soccer football. And for me as a coach, this was a fun challenge because when you're kind of trying to figure out, okay, what kind of style you're going to play and, you know, you always want to kind of stay true to who you are as a coach and what, you know, you know, you don't want to do anything different, but to me, it was really creating a brand of basketball that fans would love to watch. So again, I thought defensively again was, you know, can we be a disruptive team that really gets after ball pressure, picking people up, kind of swarming the ball and turning teams over and so forth. On the offensive side, it was really for me personally, it was kind of like, how can you take the soccer brand and almost make it basketball, right? Which is like the ball movement and, you know, being able to kind of just put, you know, multiple actions to where you're getting able to create shots and again, having people watch games where you're having games in the you know 25 assists, 30 assists, giving something that just is aesthetically pleasing to watch for people who maybe never been fans of basketball. So that was kind of the fun thing as a team, as an organization. You know, I think the players really enjoyed it as well because they knew it was a, you know, a style that hopefully was going to produce wins. But at the same time, like, can you get people to, to really enjoy what they're doing and come back for a second game, come back for a fifth game? You know, and, and we started seeing that towards the end of the year to the point where you know, we played our championship game last Sunday you know, at the O2 Arena here in London, and there was 18,000 people there. To have 18,000 people, and it was majority London fans, you know, I remember our first basketball scored, and it was, you kind of tell, like, wow, these people are here, to, they're cheering us on. So that was the basis of kind of when we were building it and trying to figure out, you know, how you want to do it. It was really connecting the style with, you know, getting the fans to enjoy it as well. Coach, in terms of then selling that vision to your players that you brought in and getting their buy-in, obviously they're going to be a big piece as well to connecting the vision and bringing the fans in getting those guys to buy it was just a lot of early conversations you know i think really laying the groundwork in a lot of ways of getting them to understand again like we're only going to be as good as we can be if we do this together you look at our roster you know we did have a couple guys that had nba experience but with that nba experience you know i'm alluding to sam decker and, and costa kufis they were never the go-to guys right their role was different in the nba and if you look at some of the other guys we had you know, they played throughout Europe, like none of them have ever been, you know, the man. You know, I remember having a, a really 
it was one of those moments you have as a coach where he's like, this can either go really good or really bad. And I remember it was before a film session and I asked the guys to stand up and we wrote everyone's name on the whiteboard. And I told them, I want you to show us how many Euro Cup teams or EuroLeague right, offers came into you before coming here. And I think the total was five that we had. And two guys in particular, I think had four of those. My point was just really, again, it wasn't to really single guys out and say, you know, you're not good enough. That wasn't it at all. It was more so getting guys to understand that, hey, if we're going to do this, if we're going to have success, like well, we've got to do this together. And then that was early in the season because Again, like I said, there was early in the year where there was your kind of the alphas or your cutting heads a little bit and guys aren't really accepting their roles and maybe wanted a bigger role. That's part of the process. That's part of the growth. That's where we had a disadvantage where you don't have continuity, right? You don't have, you're not coming into the, to the beginning of the season and everyone knows, oh, this guy was the leading scorer on the team last year. You know, this guy was a starting center on the team last year. It was a clean slate. It made for a really fun training camp. Like it was competitive. But I think once games got started, like any team, you're going to have jealousy. There's going to be egos involved. You know, as a coach, like how can we figure out, you know, how do you get guys to gel and mesh and understand, you know, okay, this is what we're going to need out of you. And, you know, that was kind of the, the beginning of it. George, maybe moving to the court, you mentioned continuity was going to be a, a challenge or one of your issues to start the season. Did that weigh into your decision to maybe also start on the defensive end? The defensive side was just, I think it's always been personally, where I've always been the most comfortable as a coach, just my time with the Raptors and, and coaching the CBO, you know, we had one of the best defenses in that league every year. I think, again, that's where looking at our roster, I felt like we could be a good defensive team. I thought we had really good size. I liked our length and our versatility. But to me, that was where I saw right away, hey, we can be really good here. We always want guys to be able to see it and feel success. And I think that's where we saw it early, even in the preseason. You know, the, our defensive system that we implemented, it was a little new for some of them, right? But I think once they started seeing the success of it, a buy-in comes a little quicker. Whereas on the offensive end, that I just kind of knew was going to take time. And, you know, I said this earlier, I, I didn't want to pigeonhole guys into, you know, certain roles because to be honest with you, I didn't know everybody's strengths and weaknesses. You can dive into the film and you can watch certain things, but I guess a great example of that was, you know, Tomislav Zubic, who we had here, Zuba, we call him, was He's just a seven foot, kind of four or five, who would really been more of a pick and pop guy his entire career. We get into training camp. I remember playing in a preseason tournament out in France. And I really like this guy can handle the ball. He, he's a heck of a passer. Now, how do we utilize that skill set to where as if I kind of just went into it at the beginning of the year saying, you know, hey, this guy, we just want him to set screens, pop and shoot, you know, maybe play second side action. We got to the point where, I mean, I had him handling, you know, four or five pick and roll and then you know, doing some pretty unique things, I thought. And and then he just, again, there was on the flip side of that too, there was some other guys that maybe you felt like you didn't get the best out of. It's tough. I think offensively, that's where it, systematically, how do we want to play? And beginning of the year, it was more so a lot of pick and rolls. We got to just, you know, November and I was like, we're not effective running a lot of pick and rolls. How do we adjust that? Maybe we get into more DHOs or, or cutting action to where we can like try to create some strengths. And that's just where, again, you know, as a coach, you always have to be able to adapt, you know, adjust, you know, to your personnel. And once we got a few months in, we started doing more of that. Coach, on the offensive end, what environments did you think about building in the practice to allow you to learn from your players? As a coach, you're trying to, again, from a practice standpoint, you know, how do you build it? Beginning of practice every day, uh, you know, we're fortunate we're our coaching staff. We've got guys that are able to get out on the court and really work with guys and sweat with them. So we do a lot of stuff where we do a lot of breakdown, you know, whether it's, you know, two on two, three on three, even up to four on four, where we're just putting them into different actions where they're just having to make reads, you know, and for me, it's not uncommon. I've always believed in it because, you know, instead of just playing five on five live all the time or a lot, can you create an environment where you're maybe putting guys in a 15 minute segment Can one guy have 10 reps where he's handling a pick and roll has got to make decisions and reads. Whereas you're playing in a five and five, you could scrimmage for maybe 20 minutes and your starting two guard might handle in a pick and roll, you know, what, two, three times, you know? So I think just, again, doing a lot more breakdown, you know, build out type things where you're working on those actions. And that's where, for me, it was, you kind of see some things that guys are just doing naturally. And you know, I kind of alluded to earlier where I realized that we might be a better team when we work in like getting into those long DHOs, right? Maybe pick and pop somebody and then we cut a guy from the slot and then get into that long DHO on the backside where we're not having to 
create a pick and roll and handle with a lot of pressure. And, you know, maybe it's an easier way for us to kind of put pressure on the big. So just in those segments in practice and trying to be creative in that regard, that was really helpful for us, especially early in the season. Coach, you mentioned your preference and you like long DHOs. And I think I'd like to circle back to that for a quick second and just what it is to you and then why you felt it was so effective for this group. For me, the long DHO is just more so, you know, playing on, on the backside. So maybe if you get into an early step up right on one of the outer thirds and pop the guy back, you know, to the top of the key, depending on if there's two guys on the weak side or just one, you know, really just getting that DHO with the guy in the opposite corner. And, you know, for me, what I really liked about it was it puts the big defensively in multiple actions, right? Where especially you see a lot of times over here in Europe, you know, though fives and even fours, if they're involved with that early pick and roll, pretty aggressive. You're not seeing a lot of bigs just playing in a drop, especially in that initial action. It's really difficult to be really aggressive in that first pick and roll, have to recover on the pop, and then now have to guard, you know, that second side DHO, which you really can't be ultra aggressive in that unless you're going to switch, right? Where you're not going to really hedge on a DHO. And I just thought also for us offensively, it helped some of our guards and wings creating advantage a little easier than just maybe, you know, just having to initiate a pick and roll on their own. You know, we didn't have, and that was the thing outside. We you know, said we lost our starting point guard on day one. And then, you know, Sam Decker was obviously a very high volume guy for us. But you know, we, our other wings and guards weren't really used to handling the ball quite a bit, but they were good at being able to kind of play downhill. And I think there was a lot of variables that went into that. And it was just something for us that I, we started having some success with. And Pat knows this about me. We start talking about DHOs and I get pretty excited, <laughs> um, but <laughs> so it's no surprise I circle back to it, but just a quick, maybe tactical teaching point on those long DHOs and the synergy between the big going into the DHO, the guard setting them up out of the corner and I guess angles, I mean, trying to, you know, force an over, is it a pitch? Is it a handoff? A little bit of how you teach that. I'm the same way as you. I like this topic. I even kind of catch myself in practices like, all right, take a step back because just on this topic alone, right? You can, is it just going to be a, an actual dribble handoff where they're handing the ball off to one another? Or do you want them to get into a pitch? And then we even started doing towards the end of the year where it was, because we had to play small due to injury and, you know, we didn't have Costa to finish out the season. So we ended up like where instead of it being a pitch, it was more of like kind of a pass and really just like a hard cut and try to attack off his back. I think all three of those are interesting to dive into and work on. It was a lot more dribble handoffs or pitches, right? If it depended on like how aggressive the defense was, obviously the more aggressive the defense was, we try to want to get into more of a pitch because obviously, as you guys know, you don't want them to try to blow it up or get a deflection. However, sometimes that gets a little risky. The timing that you have to have with guys is really, really important. Our backup center, Josh Sharma, sees seven feet, really athletic. And, you know, one of the best lob threats that I've had the privilege of coaching, you know, so for us, it was always for him, how do we create an advantage and try to get the defending guard to go over the top so we can create a potential lob, especially on, you know, those long DHOs where you're trying to really create an empty side pick and roll. And then also, then we had our seven foot pick and pop four or five, you know, we, it became really anything. You can be a DHO because if they go under, you get into a rescreen. Now he's popping back to the slot. And then he was pretty good with that stuff. So. A lot of it was more personnel you know, driven, and that was the fun part with us. We had, whether it was Costa, Zuba, or Josh Sharma, like all three of those guys are different. And so it kind of became, you know, what is their preference? You know, one of them liked a short roll. One of them, like I said, was a lead lob threat. Another one was a legitimate pick and pop threat. And so you just try to kind of find a balance. I found it was more difficult for the guards because you have to really identify quickly who are you in the action with. And I think just being able to kind of identify that and be able to make that quick read I thought they did a pretty good job with it. Zooming back out into our conversation about this first season, making all this stuff fit together. You talked in the beginning about meeting with the owners and the whatnot of the group and the vision, giving that vision to the players. For you, looking back now on the season, what did you learn, I guess, about yourself as a head coach and the type of messaging and how you present messages that you have to have all the time to consistently stay on point and on brand as you move through this really long season? For myself personally, it was everything that you study and you read and you listen to your guys' podcast with all these great coaches you've had on. You know, you can prepare for all of it, but I think at the end of the day, you have to stay true to who you are and you've got to be authentic. And that's why this was such a fun opportunity for me as a coach, because I, I really truly believed in in what our ownership and management was trying to do here. And it's kind of interesting and, and ironic looking back on it. 
Yeah, I remember when I was talking to people and I left the Toronto Raptors organization to take this opportunity. You know, a lot of people thought it was a dumb move and it was risky, you know, for leaving, but I truly believed in, in what they were doing. I thought it was a, a fun opportunity to kind of take on the challenge. So to that point, I, you know, as we went through the year, you know, the messaging was consistent because, you know, deep down, I, I really believed in what we were doing. It wasn't like in November, I'm sitting here talking about it. And then we get to February and the message is completely different. But I do, I think you have to find unique ways to keep hammering home the message, but also keep guys, you know, bought in and, you know, this was the first time I've ever been you know, part of a almost a 10 month season. Our G League season is about you're getting 50 games squeezed into you know five months. You know, CBL is three months. So there was a couple of times, you know, you kind of you're sitting at home and it's dark and gloomy day in February. What's next? I'm being honest, I'm not just saying this because I'm on your show, but you guys as a resource, you know, some other things, whether you're reading or you're watching other coaches do interviews. You know, there's always something you're going to be able to relate to other coaches and what they've gone through and, you know, try to take bullet points from here or there that might be able to help your team during that time. A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Wemu and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Thanks to Huddle for the support, and now back to our conversation. Coach, thanks for going through all that stuff. This has been great so far. We want to shift now to a conversation in a segment we call start sub or sit and so kind of a lightning round situation for you we'll ask you a question give you three options start one sub one sit one and then we'll go from there so you have not heard any of these so these are right off the cuff for you are you ready we can dive in on this first one i love this part so i'm excited to see what you got all right, sounds good so coach i know we mentioned a little bit about you actually went away from some of the pick and roll and the roller stuff and preferring to pop and all that. And this question is actually going to be about going through some of your analytics before we got on the show today. One of the things you were really efficient in, one of the best teams efficiency-wise, were actually passing it and throwing it to your roller when you did actually roll in a pick and roll. You guys were one of the best at doing that, even though it wasn't something you used all the time. And so we're going to ask you to start subsit. What goes into pick and roll efficiency on the roller for you when you think about how to make that an efficient action? So your start here would be, you think is the most important part of it. So start sub or sit. Option one is the area on the floor where that pick and roll is going to take place. Option two is the off ball cutting around that pick and roll to move or lift tags to help that roller potentially be open. Option three is just the screening ability or IQ of that five or four that's going to screen a roll, forcing it over, slipping out, whatever it is that they do well to help get themselves open. So start, sub, or sit those three when it comes to the roller efficiency. Oh, this is a fun one. Yeah, I think for me, I would start the cutting. I think being able to create the opportunity to open up the floor a little bit. I think the sub would have to be probably location on the floor, I think would be the next one. And then the sit would be, what'd you say? There's a screening, the... Yeah, the ability of the screener, the IQ or how they screen. Yeah, well, let's, let's sit that one. Coach, let's start with your start and how you think about, we've talked a little bit about some offensive principles in that first part of our conversation, but when it comes to potentially opening up a role and what's going on cutting wise with your other three players. I mean, how do you think about that? This was something that we, you know, really utilized quite a bit. You know, I think, you know, some of it has to do with how high level your guards have been able to make those reads and passes, you know, and then also too, as you guys know, like in Europe, it's fun because the defensive rules, they make it difficult to really open the floor up a lot and, you know, really being able to kind of pack the pain and zone up a lot, if you, if you will. So, you know, for us, it was, you know, and I said, we talked about it earlier. We had a, a guy who was really good at you know, a lob threat and, Early in the season, he was making a highlight film for himself. And you know, as we got to the second half of the season, that was a game plan, right? Teams were really trying to take that away. So again, the cutting and whether it's we're attacking the heavy side and teams are really playing with like a heavy lift, you know, we would do a lot of things where 
you saw with Obradovich's you know, Fenerbahce teams back there where they would kind of cut the guy to the corner and drift you know, down. And I think that really would open up you know, more so for the playmaker, because again, I think ability to make that pass, you know, if you can open the floor up a little bit, it just creates a little bit more vision and freedom for the guard. But then also too, it put a lot of pressure on the big plane and maybe a drop where he doesn't really have the guards or the wings to kind of help kind of plug the floor a little bit. So again, like that cutting action was really good. And then another one that I liked too was, and we talked about it earlier with our favorite DHO topic, but you know, was playing on that backside and kind of getting those long DHOs where maybe that initial action is not going to be because the defense can really load up and take that away. But if we can maybe pop the guy back and play second side, you know, we, we can slot cut that guy out. And then it really puts pressure on the guard defender trying to get through the DHO. And then again, those empty side pick and roll actions were something that we had a lot of success with too, because you're kind of eliminating the help defender, you know, which I think to me kind of goes into the next part where we start like the location of the floor. But yeah, I think the cutting for me was, I thought it really helped our guards mainly just being able to make the play when we were able to cut and just shift the defense a little bit instead of really letting the defense load up to take that action away. I'll stick with the cutting for a second. I thought it was kind of interesting. You mentioned like what types of cuts were more helpful for the ball handler as a playmaker. Did cutting change at all? Or do you think when it was maybe not your primary ball handler in an action and whether you would cut any differently or was it more just systematic rules in whatever the pick and roll was? I mean, it's definitely more systematic because obviously just with, you know, more drop coverage base, right? Like if we have teams are playing in that drop coverage, would really just try to kind of open things up a little bit more. You know, I did say it was a little bit kind of, I think, helped with the decision making for the guards. Early on, they struggle with it though because it can be, it's almost like too many reads. you got to make your own read as a guard coming off of that. you got your big roll into the rim. And also now you've got to kind of cut from the corner and then drift in, which option is the right read. But I think as the more, again, kind of going back to what we spoke about earlier, like in the practice, you know, early portion of our practice segments, just repping that stuff out and just getting guys comfortable with understanding the timing of it, what the read is going to be, when the read is going to be there. Then again, like then you see, you know, on the other side of it where, if maybe a team's really aggressive, that's where we would get more so into like that backside action. Like I said, maybe pop the big back and then play those long DHOs, the pitch actions, where we would get even kind of get off the actual, you know, pick and roll with like the hitting the roller. But that slot cut really opened things up for us too, where, you know, maybe because the teams weren't able to recover on that pop, they'd either full rotate or heavy stunt on that weak side. And then that, that slot cut, you know, maybe we can just create something there and get an easy paint touch off of that. My follow-up has to do with the big, your screener. And as you mentioned, you had a real good lob threat, you know, a guy who could really get on the rim. What were you working with in terms of how you wanted him to maybe force overs or screen in proper angles so that he could get to the rim and be a threat? Early in the year, he struggled a little bit because he was constantly getting called for moving screens, both domestically and even in Euro Cup. So it was more so of just really working with him and teaching and watching the film of you know trying to attack that defender especially those like the dhos or, or pitches you know and then also to just the angle of the screen where sometimes it was personnel driven with what defenses would do but then there were some teams that just like they'd go under a lot so we really try to kind of set you know like that angle kind of 45 degree angle as you approach the defender to try to really force him to have to go over kind of our message into him was look if the guard goes over we win especially with him. He, like, he put so much pressure on the rim and like, they're always going to, whether it's a high tag, a low tag, sometimes both, maybe you don't get the ball, but we've got some guys that are good shooters or good at attacking closeouts on the backside. And we create those, put the defense into long rotations, long closeouts. It's all a little marginal things, but just your angle of your screen, you know, and that was it. Just so we always talk about kind of 45 degrees and get him to go over the top. And then from there, we'll just, you know, make reads and play. The sticking the screen versus slipping the screen or knowing when to get out. What was the discussions like there helping him with that? He was really good at like, slipping out like getting out early. And then it was funny too, because then he had different guards in particular who one wanted him like get out, get out, slip out. And then there's another one, hold the screen, hold the screen. So he had to kind of learn that balance and just, you know, who's he on the floor with, you know, what does this guard want and so forth. So it wasn't so much always with what with for him, it was, like who is he involved in that action with and one of our guards loved when he would just slip out because he was pretty quick and strong where he can kind of get in the paint and create an advantage and then he knew he'd have him on the roll and there was the other one like who he was always telling him like hold the screen you know don't move which he didn't love it because it was pretty delayed how he'd get out because his worry was if i set and i get out still pretty quick he was about 50 percent of the time 
it was a moving screen for him. So he didn't love that one too much. In terms of why that guard wanted him to hold it, you mentioned kind of the strength of the other guard who wanted to slip. A guard that wants him to hold the screen, what is he looking to get to or play to? I think for him, it was more like he was really good at just defending the guard like on his hip and being able to hold him off. He kind of felt like if I can get the defender on my hip or on my back, you know, that's where he knew he had an advantage. And he was always strong enough to where he'd be able to hold him off when it let the defender kind of get back in front. So that was more so his ability just to force him to go over, but set it. And then again, like if I can get him on my back, he's a veteran, you know, Jordan Taylor, who's played in, in Europe for a really long time. That was just like where he was just really comfortable and being able to make those reads and decisions. And again, create his advantage where if he slipped out a lot of times, he just kind of felt like he was playing one-on-one, right? With that defender, because maybe that guard can get back in front really quick, or maybe just kind of on his hip, but not really quite the advantage he wanted. So for him, it was more so get that guard on my hip or my back. And then, you know, from there that he felt that his advantage and our advantage was more so in favor of him. Coach, our next start sub sit for you. So your start would be the hardest thing to teach your players. Start sub or sit, teaching them comprehension, teaching them retention, or teaching them the application in terms of a habit, a skill, a concept? Obviously, all are really important. I would say start comprehension. I would sub the retention and sit the application. I'd like to start with your sub and how you think about teaching retention or getting your players to actually remember stuff. This is something that I've I, you know, spent a lot of time, especially the last year in the summer. One of my assistant coaches that worked within the CBL and actually she's with the Detroit Pistons this year, Brittany Donaldson. She spent a lot of time researching this, just, you know, again, like the teaching element of coaching and then how do you, you know, get players to retain information. I think too many times as coaches, right, we especially get in the season and there's just so many games and you're focused scout report and this and that. And, you know, sometimes we forget, you know, we're just throwing a bunch of information, you know, at these players, but how do we get them to retain it? So sometimes we would do something where we maybe would introduce something, you know, maybe it was a walkthrough type of, you know, session where whether it's a new play, whether it's a new coverage, whatever you're doing, literally just introduce it and then We'd go and the guys would do their normal warm up, dynamic warm up. We do our normal pick and roll breakdown to start, and then we come back to it. And you know, maybe we'll just do a live segment for five minutes, but don't even teach it. Right? You introduced it earlier. You kind of left it alone. Now let's just play, but don't stop it every time. It's brand new. And then again, can we come back to it maybe a little bit later? And now you kind of maybe stop every now and then and teach and correct again. Just allow them to try to retain on it. Right? I think. Instead of spending 20 minutes on, you know, where you're just doing something the entire time and you're stopping and you're teaching, you're stopping, you're teaching, you're stopping. And it's just kind of worth repetitive. Give it to them a little bit more like quick doses and then forget about it. Come back to it. I think to me, what I found, and I give her a lot of credit for this because it was something that she really kind of put on my radar. I found right away that you could just tell for us it worked. Like the retention I felt was a lot higher, you know, than it had been if you were just to do something in just like a little block segment, you know, of whether it's 15 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever that is, left it alone, came back to the next day, wasn't retained as as much as when you kind of doing these little like smaller segments. Allow them to just play and figure it out on their own after you've really introduced it, taught it a little bit. That's a fun one for me. Something that I've really kept in the toolbox a little bit. Could a follow up on when you just allowed them to play with it and little teaching, but after you kind of introduced it, what did you find out about that that made you believe that this was very successful in helping them retain it? I think that it was like those little quick hits. I don't know what it is with us as coaches. You feel like you there's always more to say, more to teach. And to me, it was based on listening to her and the research that she had put into this. I've always been interested in trying to do things a little bit differently and kind of go out on a limb a little bit. You know, if it's going to help, like why not try it? And so I think once I did it, like the first thing we did, I think it was a new zone, you know, that I did, you know, this last summer. And I mean, I'm, I'm not joking. We probably spent maybe three or four minutes, like just introducing it. Like, all right, this is, you know, what goes here. This is, this guy's bumping here and you're dropping this side. Boom, done. All right, let's we go warm up and then we come back to it. And it was maybe 30, 40 minutes later in practice. And you could see like the retention already right there. Right. And then left alone again and then came back the next day, I think it was. And it was sharp. And it wasn't just like one or two of them. It was like the entire team and just kind of in unison. And, you know, defensively, as we all love to see as coaches, everyone was moving on a string. And so to me, I was just smiling. I'm like, wow, this works. This is kind of tying in our conversation to start this podcast, which was you came into a situation where there's not continuity of a program, all new guys, everything's new. 
And so some of this stuff we're talking about retention wise, like if you have a program where players are coming back and they have this sort of institutional knowledge of what you do, but you didn't have that. Was it a difficult process or what was your process of figuring out how to funnel down what information to actually give your players? Because of all the things we've talked about, everything is new of how you play offensively, defensively, and them to retain stuff. And some of that is obviously how much you give them to retain. And so how did you and your staff think about how much to give them this year? It was tough. I think wasn't great at it. I think you know, even for me, it's you look back and you always reflect as a coach and man, I could have been better here. We could have done this better. And I think I said at the beginning, like, I wish you guys would have done a podcast on this earlier that I could have listened to this summer because so many times during the season, I had felt like, you know, we should have started with this instead of doing it this way or, you know, try to rewind. But again, you're in the middle of a season and, you know, so just trying to, again, continue to adapt, adjust, you know, and do what you need to do. But I think, you know, the foundation or the skeleton, you know, everything was really pillar-based, right? We had, obviously, when you talk about implementing the culture, we had a standard of performance, you know, that we talked about as far as how we wanted everything to do, what was the expectations. And then also two part of that was, you know, our style of play and our pillars and what we were going to do defensively. You know, we had four for each, four offensive and four defensive. And to me, that was just, again, defensively, no matter if we're, you know, in a zone, if we're in a man, like we're going to do these four things. And offensively, it's not so much about the specific play, but it's how we want to play. Those four things to me were like, that was kind of the starting point because you go through the season and your personnel is going to adjust because of injuries. And you know maybe you sign a, a player too late in the year, which we did. You're always going to have to adapt on those things. But I think if you can give the players pillars, you know, we call them that they can really kind of stand on and understand, you know, no matter what we're running on either, like, you know, the, these are the things that we really need to stay true to. Could you just, if you mind sharing your four pillars on offense and defense that you had with your team? Yeah, for sure. So to start with, for us, it was, you know, press up, which was ball pressure really for us. So just again, that's just getting into the ball, impacting the ball. The second one was shrinking the floor. Right? So we talked about that a little bit earlier. Third one was shot contests, right? We And basically, again, contesting every single shot. The fourth one was kind of a fun one for us. We called them kills. And I know in, in normal coaching terms, kills are three stops in a row. For us, we changed it just basically killing the possession. So that was obviously rebounding. And for us also, it was taking charges. It was, you know, 50-50 balls, diving on the floor for 50-50 balls. You know, really just anything that killed that possession. So those are the four defensively, you know, and then offensively for us was spacing was the number one. So for us, it was really getting out and filling the corners early in the possession, you know, playing with tempo. The popular saying is space and pace, but for us, it was more tempo. I didn't really want us to play fast necessarily. It was more you know, creating a tempo in the half court with ball movement, player movement. We've talked a lot about, you know, so far, you know, pick and rolls and long DHOs and cutting. You know, and just, again, getting the ball moving and popping a little bit. And then the other one was paint touches. So that was the third one for us is really put emphasis on getting the paint. And then also it was passing. So just, again, we wanted to be a team that was high with assists. So those were those four. And all for all these, so there was, you know, four for each. You know, we tracked all this during the season. Individually, we would track it. As a team, we would track it. Early in the season, it's good because I think it, it also can hold guys more accountable when you're showing. So instead of just speaking to something like, hey, we need to you know, shrink the floor, we need to you know, contest shots, like you're actually showing this to your team, your players. So there's the accountability factor. And then also there's the buy-in, right? I think by doing that, like we would show numbers of team shooting percentage when we were contesting versus when we didn't. When players see how significant of a change that is, like, hey, these guys shot 75% from three when we didn't get a good contest versus they shot 23% when we were getting a hand in their face and, and just, you know, trying to make a miss, you know, same thing on the offensive side, we would, you know, paint touches for us this year. The trend that was really alarming and pretty crazy was our three point percentage when the ball hit the paint first versus not. So obviously our, our huge emphasis on getting into the paint, you know, we shot, I'll have to go back and look. I think on this season, we shot 47% as a team from three when the ball hit the paint first versus when it didn't, I think it was sub 30. We just came down and it was maybe a, a quick three or maybe one or two passes, perimeter-based possession, as I referred to it as. We didn't shoot the ball really well. And as a coach, you start to notice the trends and it was really just those paint touch threes created a rhythm for us, right? Like guys were just, you know, being able to you know, get into the paint, kick it, swing it, maybe one more. And then they're stepping into it with rhythm and confidence. So you get to see the players see this. And at first they're looking at it like, there's a lot of numbers up here. You start showing it with the film and I would pull clips and theme it out, right? Our paint touch clips. And they would show, you know, in some games we'd 
paint touch threes, we shot 70% from three that game. You just put that in the text. And so they just get more and more used to it. And then you just start to form your identity and, and how you're trying to play, you know, throughout that way. Been talking a little bit about the four pillars that have led to a philosophy or a style of play. Is there anything else that you think about that builds either on top of these things, more, I guess, culturally, what you think about as it relates to, you know, building up the program? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for us as an organization, you know, me as a coach, something I've kind of built out over the years is, you know, I call it our championship caliber culture. And it really, it starts with who you are as people, right? Who you are as a competitor. Like it's kind of like the foundational piece of that, you know, so there's some characteristics that, you know, we really put an emphasis on, you know, that's those four on the bottom, I guess you'd say the true foundation, you know, is humility, accountability, sacrifice, and authenticity. And I think too, when you get into this stuff, obviously as all of us coaches know when it comes to culture, you want to be careful with, you know, just putting words and signs on a wall. It really kind of has to speak to who you are as a coach, what you believe in, what you want your team to look like. And again, a lot of our conversation that we've had was just building a brand new team and kind of went into that. So, you know, through the recruiting process that, you know, myself and Brett Berman did was we last summer, I was really looking for high character guys. And, you know, again, because you're bringing in all these people, number one thing is you want to have good people, part of your organization, part of your program. The next piece of that was, all right, who are they as competitors? So it's kind of broken into three tiers, I guess you'd say. And it was, you know, character, right? And then you're who you are as a competitor. And then the next one was called growth mindset, which is really touches on the player development piece of our program. And again, a lot of that was, I think I alluded to earlier with, you know, you see like the Miami Heat and what they're doing in the NBA playoffs and having all these undrafted guys and playing at the highest level they've ever played at. And that was kind of a little bit of our approach because we knew with a lot of our roster, we didn't have a lot of the guys that just had played in Euro Cup. So we knew, okay, can everybody, some of our British players and and some of these other guys were bringing in, you know, how do we get them to play at a level higher than they've ever played before? And I think a lot of that is just, you know, putting an emphasis on, you know, for us as a coaching staff, but also asking the players to come in and with that growth mindset and trying to get better every single day. And as you guys know, as coaches, like you get into December, January, in the middle of season, you know, it's tough to kind of still come in and, and have that approach of like, I'm, I'm trying to get better today. So that was a little bit of, you know, our culture piece with the pillars. And then from there kind of gets into the defensive stuff. And we obviously all have, you know, four offensive ones as well. But I think that the biggest thing is just kind of having that overall vision. Like, what do you want your team to look like? And then also the one thing I always go back to is it can't just be words, right? I think it's something that you really have to believe in. I think you have to show by example every single day and also really emphasize it. And we've had times throughout the season, you know, where you got to come back and talk about like, this is what we really value as an organization, as a coach. But yeah, that kind of touches on a little bit more of the overall pillars. It's more than just style of play. It kind of, we build on it, but like the foundation piece of it is again, more of the, who you are as a person, who you are as a competitor. And then from there, be able to build out, you know, how you want to play. Coach. During the recruitment phase, when you're having conversations with prospective players, like you said, in August preseason, it's easy to give lip service and say, yeah, I'm, you can hold me accountable. I'm going to sacrifice. But like I said, now you're in November, there's a losing streak and guys kind of show their true colors. So when you're having these recruiting conversations, what are you thinking about to try to uncover the characteristics of these guys that you can maybe hope judge if this guy's a right fit or, you know, how he'll react to adverse times? This is one of my favorite questions, actually. I think to me, it's, I always try to touch on, you know, you kind of get in, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of you know, who they are, their background. And as a coach, you want to, you're going to talk to them and the agent about your style of play, what you believe in. But I think once you kind of get through those, you know, the surface level stuff, for me, I, I really want to get to know them. And, you know, again, that's where I say like these pillars and, you know, what you believe in as a culture, I think you really have to like, truly live it and believe it. So again, you know, we talk about the humility piece, right? Or sacrifice. And I ask guys a lot of time, like, you know, talk about a time, you know, in your career, you know, where you've gone through some adversity, right? And you've kind of been humbled a little bit, or it might define who you are as a person right now. And you can kind of see, you know, like sometimes it catches guys off guard a little bit, but then also other times you, again, you kind of get to see who they are as people. And, and also, you know, we do this during the season, kind of giving away all my secrets here, but we actually do what I call player talks, where we actually have the players get up and they give a PowerPoint presentation on themselves. And we touch on a lot of these pillars. And one of the things I ask them to do is, again, talk about a moment of adversity that you've gone through, whether it's, you know, your personal life, professional life, obviously both, you know, that kind of defines who you are and where you're at today. And that's where you really see the walls come down. 
And I think you start to see the team sort of developing because it's one thing to kind of go into battle or into a game with a teammate that you know who he is as a basketball player. But when you also know that, and I've had, I've done this for four years now and you hear pretty crazy stuff, right? Like there's been some really emotional ones, you know, where guys talk about, you know, maybe losing, you know, a loved one or a best friend or, Obviously, you hear a lot about you know injuries, like really serious, you know, whether it's ACLs, Achilles, and how guys battle back from that and maybe how that affected them. They lost a job because of it. And, you know, so again, when you see that, like, again, like also now they get to know each other kind of on a little bit of a deeper level. But again, that's kind of what I've alluded to with it's one thing to, to pay the lip service and talk about, you know, the sacrifice, humility, accountability. But, you know, can we all get to know each other with that being really the foundation and background of what we're building on? Just to follow up on that, because I think that's a really cool thing that you do. And I was going to ask about how you make sure the conversations afterward or you as a staff foster the environment so that like that sharing takes place. Because as you mentioned, those can be really potentially tough things to share. And, you know, public speaking is like the number one fear of people, basically, especially in front of your peers. So how you and the staff have made it so that they feel comfortable if they share something and then are there conversations that take place beyond what they say, like do you as a group keep discussing or, you know, how do you run the whole thing? To be honest, when I started it, the first time I did it, it was, you know, you're kind of taking a shot at the dark, but I wanted to do something, you know, from a team building standpoint that was a little different. You know, I think the first year, to be honest, when I did it was, it was right during COVID. I was coaching the, in the CBL and this was in late July, early August, and they you know, were able to do a bubble right outside of Toronto. And so you couldn't really go out and do a bunch of things. So I was, again, trying to get creative and how do we get these guys to come together? And it was just kind of an idea that I you know, brainstormed about a little bit. So that first year was obviously the toughest one. But then from there, the second year and even third, you have returning players that come back. And so I always have, would have them start. So like the first few would be guys who have been part of the team the year prior. So they kind of understand what it looks like and they, they'll be vulnerable from the jump. And so it kind of, I think, opens the gate a little bit to the new players understanding like, oh, wow, it's not just getting up here and talk about my family, where I've played. You know, it's, you know, you can really be honest and, and kind of get into who you are as, as a person. So, you know, that was really important. And then, you know, again, in London, you know, this year, I did have one player that had played for me in the past, and that was Aaron Best. And so he went first I and mean, kind of set the tone a little bit. From there, you can kind of see, you know, guys, I think get a little bit more comfortable. And then the other one too, I'll be honest, like, I, I do one myself, again, talking a lot about the same thing. So I think you just start to build that bond and relationship with the players. And I think when they see, understand your background, each other's backgrounds, but at the same time, when that kind of last piece we touch on is, you know, what are they looking for in this season? What are their goals that they're trying to get out of the season? A lot of people obviously talk about winning, right? And so I hold on to that. And maybe if you have to revisit, you know, whether it's an individual conversation or maybe it's before or after a game, you know, you kind of go back, you touch on, but hold on a second. Like, you know, back in the preseason, every single one of you got up here and talked about winning the championship is the most important thing. So when you hear it from them, it's kind of like, you know, you told on yourself a little bit. And so, <laughs> yeah, right. so sometimes you do have to kind of pull that card out, but it is pretty cool because I think to everyone's core, like, Everyone wants to win and everyone wants to talk about it. But again, there's going to come a time in the season or multiple times in the season where it's not about winning, right? The frustration kicks in because I'm not playing as much or I'm not getting the shots I want. But three, four months ago, you told me winning was all that mattered. So it kind of goes hand in hand a little bit, but it's kind of a fun team building exercise that I've done over the years. And, you know, like I said, it seems to work pretty well. If I could ask just one last question on all this, I just think it's really interesting on how you got to these pillars to these foundational values that you hold and if there was anybody in your past that you you know worked on these with or studied or read about i mean how did you get to these things personally yeah i think all of the above you know i think as a coach you know when you're an assistant you always want to be a head coach you know maybe not everybody but i think for me i can honestly say like i've been trying to prepare to be a head coach my entire career and i think a lot of it goes into it's not just the x's and o's it's team building right it's, it's leadership so it's a lot of books that you read it's studying other coaches you know other organizations for all sports i've taken a little bit of everything i'm a huge buffalo bills fan in the nfl and i remember i've been able to spend time with them in training camp you know on two different occasions you know and that's the championship caliber that came from them like they talk about that a lot but then like the pillar component of it when i was in toronto nick nurse was really big on pillars so i was again how do i form something that visually looks like it does but then I wanted it to all kind of tie in together. I've seen a lot of things before where 
again, some people, it's just, you know, maybe it's style of play. And that's what we had in Toronto. Like Nick was really big on like the style of defensive and offensive pillars. But then I also wanted, okay, with that below it, like as a foundation, like what's really important to me and it's, you know, building through people, right? Like I think here from other organizations, other coaches, you know, better people make better players, better executives, better coaches. And so really putting kind of an emphasis on, okay, like in people, what are some qualities that you really cherish and value? Well, that's kind of where that piece came from. And then again, like I said, I, I wanted it all to tie in instead of talking about, you know, okay, this is going to be our style of play. And then, you know, we want to talk about being good people and all, but again, how does it all tie in? And so it's a little bit of everything, right? It's NFL teams, NBA teams, New Zealand, all blacks or another organization I've studied that you can take a lot from. And then also too, just even, you know, businesses and fortune 500 companies and CEOs that, you know, I've listened to talk or read books on. So it's been fun. It changes every year a little bit. There's some things that I'll take out and maybe add, and we're in the summertime now, so who knows what it looks like come August. Coach, great stuff. You're off the start, summer, sit, hot seat. Thanks for going through all that with us. I think we touched on most parts of basketball there. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was fun. <laughs> Thank you for going through all that stuff with us. Because we got one more question for you to end the show. Before we do, again, congratulations on a great season. And thank you for your time today. This was really fun for us. No, I mean, guys, honestly, this was a lot of fun. It's an honor to be on this. And hopefully you know, some coaches out there have some valuable stuff they can use because I've definitely used you guys as a huge resource. Appreciate that. Thanks, Coach. Coach, our last question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? I love this question. And I think for me, it's almost a stock market type investment is you have to be willing to gamble on yourself a little bit. And I think that's something that I've done that's paid off so far. You know, I kind of touched on it earlier in the show. When I decided to take this job, it wasn't a very popular decision, you know, kind of among some of my peers, even mentors. But to me, it was the project itself was something I was excited about, you know, and then for me, it was just, you know, the opportunity to be a head coach in Europe. It wasn't a popular decision, but I think to leave that NBA bubble a little bit, I think is where a lot of people scared might be a little bit too harsh, but I think it kind of becomes a risk. But I think in order to grow and develop as a coach, like you have to be willing to take those risks, you know, and it's something I did even with the CBL, you know, at the time I took that head coaching job, it was a league that was going into a second season. Again, wasn't a very popular decision, but that was my opportunity, my first chance to be a, a head coach at the professional level, regardless of what it was viewed at, you know, how high of a level that was. But I'll be honest with you guys, like, if I don't take that job, there's no way I'm ready to take this job out here and, and coaching Euro Cup. And you know, I still probably wasn't ready in a lot of ways, right? Just even this last year, I learned so much and I'm excited this summer to try to go back and dive into a lot of things and continue to get better. But you know, I can honestly say from an investment standpoint, just you know, taking risk and, and kind of trusting. And with some investments come a little bit of risk. You got to gamble a little bit and hopefully they pay off. I just want to say off the bat, coaches can't dangle a conversation about EHOs in front of me like that. <laughs> yeah. The, My siren song. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I cannot be held accountable. It was nice. So I got to take a break. I knew I could just kind of yeah. sit back and then, <laughs> well, all right, I'm out for a couple of rounds. Yeah. But with Coach Schmidt, I mean, obviously a great season for him. And I think just before we get into stuff, maybe a little background on this conversation, how we got to it. One of the things as we were discussing with Coach Schmidt beforehand was just, you know, building a program from the ground up basically or from year one and just sort of, you know, off podcast conversations about his first year. I think he got into, you know, in his best investment question and stuff, like it wasn't an easy decision yeah. to go and do it. And I think that was really interesting kind of as a career move. And so our bucket for our first theme, you know, we went back and forth a lot on like, learning from your players, making the pieces fit, sort of wanted to dive into all of that because it was a lot for him to do in this first year. And he did it well, obviously they won the BBL, but I think it was an interesting place to kind of dive in and talk about a lot of stuff for him. Definitely. And I think what added to us wanting to have this conversation was what he hit on in his vision or the vision that they're trying to sell is the project they're undertaking in London with that triple seven group and trying to build basketball in London and compete internationally. So kind of also armed with that knowledge, 
you know, we knew it was, they're very young in this process. So we thought it, yeah, then this has to be a very interesting conversation with a new coach, a new team, a new club. So just a lot of groundwork that need to be laid on top of, you know, building, like you said, continuity and everything on the court. So really glad we had it. Yeah, me too. And obviously winning the BBL, you know, being in international competition, Euro cup. I mean, I think from all standpoints, as far as like, and he mentioned it too on air about how they're trying to build basketball in the city and to have a great team in London only helps international basketball. I know like similar thing, like what they're trying to do in Paris, you know, these big major Mm -hmm. cities having a good program that's building is only going to help international competition. I know it was the thought. So it was good that they had that success. Yeah. So they were performing at a high level on top of building this. It made it a really unique, interesting conversation for us and one we were looking forward to. Yep, absolutely. So I guess getting into our conversation, things that stick out to you first and foremost. I always enjoy when we talk to coaches off air and on like where you start, you know, offense, defense. We've heard a lot is like to definitely, you know, teach what you know. And mm-hmm. he felt the most confident in defense and starting there and, you know, building the defense first and then getting into the offense, which is you know, we're always interested in just like the battle of control versus freedom and learning your players and building your offense throughout the season and not just being so rigid or stuck in the mud like he alluded to when, you know, they weren't very efficient in the pick and roll. And then we got, you know, right in your sweet spot with those DHOs. But, yep. you know, it's always interesting as a coach, like, how do you notice that? I mean, obviously, there's one thing, the stats, but then having the ability to actually apply it on the court and, you know, what do you do in practice to see these things kind of shine through? to help with, you know, pivots that you need to make as a coach. Yeah. I liked how he mentioned his backstory of just becoming up and and feeling comfortable as a defensive coach. And I think that's always interesting right there as far as offensive versus defensive minded coaches, or I know everybody's both, but like where you feel more comfortable and how you build your team, your culture, your environment, if you're more of a defensive coach versus if you're more of an offensive coach. And obviously, as we saw, he's a talented offensive coach as well as you heard yeah but i think that's interesting you know from a culture building standpoint of you know he mentioned later we'll get to him some of the pillar stuff as well as how he built that i thought was really good i did like some of his conversations just on and maybe this is jumping ahead too much but within making everything fit together just practices and implementations of things and you know you kind of just heard from the player development to working in groups and five on five. And then you heard, I think it starts up sit, which I would, don't want to skip to, but remind me a little bit of Damien Cotter and messy practices at times and not over coaching those kinds of things. I kind of took that from that first part. And then I'll just dive in real quick. I loved the long DHO conversation. I know you know that, but particularly because we've had a lot of DHO conversations, but what I liked that I thought was a touch different was first of all, the term long DHO. I wanted to make sure like I kind of understood him correctly but it's a little different than just some of the other dho conversations that we've had and i really liked him getting into why that worked and i think like you heard him talking about how they piece their offense together and then also how he understood how players worked with each other and i think that was also beyond the long dho conversation itself it was hearing the inner workings of his thoughts on building things out was interesting to me that's another point i wrote down on reminds you of you know, a project we did with the pro lane of just rethinking how you can take advantage of these 15 minute blocks where it's just a certain scenario, maybe, but Mm -hmm. putting guys in different situations, building synergy, building chemistry, but also then what this first kind of bucket of conversation was of just being able to learn and watch and kind of see what your players do naturally. They do naturally well so that you can also then apply to your global view of the offense. So I really like hearing just the methodology coaches use and the value they place on maybe these two on two, three on three games and just a 15 minutes and giving them multiple decisions and the value of just placing, you know, the ball in their hands and giving them access and freedom to just play basketball. Moving to start sub or sit, I'll let you take it away. I'd like to give you props. You did a quick little tangent, not a tangent, but we had discussed a few different options. We agreed on an option before, and then you switched it, which was good because I think that it actually led to a really nice conversation. So that tough to teach with comprehension, retention, application, a good question by you. And I guess your takeaways from that. I mean, this is why I think we love start, sub, sit. I mean, 
I'll get to the question I asked, but then that it just leads to just conversations we weren't prepared for, didn't know where it was going to go with getting into his pillars. And yeah, and it actually then tied up really nicely to the first original conversation we had. So yeah, this is why it's always fun. Yep. Sometimes the struggle of coming up with three, but yeah, we were sweating bullets for two minutes before we start trying to figure out how to do it, but figure out this damn third one. <laughs> yeah. I was curious about retention and as coach Schmidt alluded to, by referencing, he learned it from Brittany Donaldson. I saw a social media post from her. I think she had done some clinic or a podcast and he commented on it that he learned a lot from her. So that's really where the conversation or the thought popped into my head. I, I thought it was a really interesting conversation and wanted to follow up and learn more myself. It was great. I mean, honestly, what was really cool about that is it ended up flowing into his pillars and getting to hear a little bit about the backbone of how he built things too. And then I think those pillars if I could tie them together, those things do help in the retention process because everything goes back to these things yeah, and funnels back. Yeah, it funnels yeah. back in. So I'll just keep it moving to the other one. That question, the pick and roll, the roller efficiency came out of looking through their analytics this year. They were, it just kind of stood out. They were really good with that. And I thought it was also mm-hmm. interesting because it wasn't one of their like highest usage rate play types too, yeah. but they were super efficient in it. And I think it was interesting. I didn't realize this till we were on air with him, but he mentioned how they kind of went away from some types of pick and roll stuff and did more pick and pop because of their personnel, but they still ended up being really efficient when they did roll. And I think we talked off air with him about he really was high on teaching cutting. And so I think that was his start there as far as like, if you're going to have a roller and be efficient at finding the roller via a lob, like you kind of followed up with or whatever it is, how important it is to have some kind of backside cutting or rotations or movement. He mentioned Obradovich and that kind of circle wheel behind action, which is a nice little point in there too. And I'll just throw one more nugget in there that I really liked, but he just talked about how he thought that the action where they're cutting from the corner and sliding simplified some of the reads for the guard and made it easier for them to attack downhill. I just wrote a note. This would also be for me, maybe, I don't want to say this is a miss, but just a deeper conversation on the types of cutting actions, whether it's corner 45 or whatever it is that you're doing, how that plays into the ball handler and their comfort level with making those reads. And I won't go too long here, but Sue Bird talked about this when we had her on as her preference for who's cutting and when. And then also uh, when we had Jenny Busek on at the time, she was with the Mavericks and she talked about Luka Doncic wanted less cutting because he just wanted to know where guys were at all times. And so Mm. it's kind of interesting thought on who's in the pick and roll and then how that relates to how you're going to cut so that the decisions are easier for that guard. Yeah. What he kind of said, you know, I think with that Obradovich cut, it was more of a space clearing cut and yeah, they didn't really look to score out of it. But the fact that it just could free the nail, keep the big man engaged, and then hopefully open up that lob threat that they had. I'm with you. I think that's what we always think about when we talk about cutting around the pick and roll, Mm -hmm. because it can be very, and like he said too, very chaotic. Like you got to read your man, you got to read the big, and now you got a, a third body cutting in there. My last thought too, just kind of when we got into the screening, the slip versus stick, I enjoyed just hearing him talk about why, you know, the characteristics of his guards that liked mm-hmm. the big to slip out versus the guard to stick. You know, as we heard before, I think from other coaches too, it is very ball handler specific and, you know, the screener ball handler working on developing a relationship on when to roll, when to stay. But we haven't talked too much on just like, well, what are the characteristics of that point guard and why he wants the slip or why he'd want the big man to stick in the screen a little bit longer yeah no that was a good follow-up from you and i think that yeah that also something we could probably talk much longer about too is just some of those things because it is so dependent on it so i thought he talked about that really well with his two different guards and the differences of the two quickly to close here if we had you know much more time his answer to the best investment question was really really good yeah and i almost wanted to just keep going a little bit on that and we usually don't i thought it was interesting the way he phrased it and i think right now too as this podcast is coming out there's a lot of movement coaches looking for new jobs or going new places and taking chances for staying i think it's just the nature of this time of year with coaches and i thought that his thoughts on taking a chance taking a risk when a lot of maybe people he mentioned in his circle thought hey if you leave the nba or you leave this bubble it's going to be hard and he took a risk for himself and it's obviously worked out 
for him, but I could have probably spent another 10, 15 minutes just asking him why and his thoughts on those things. I think that would have been interesting and maybe we'll have him back or something off air, but I just thought that was interesting. No, I agree. I, I was with you. I was thinking the same thing, just risk assessment and just how they evaluate risk, how he weighs risk. Of course, on top of career decisions, but I think as a coach, you're making all sorts of decisions and they all could be risky in terms of win losses when you look into games. And so just get inside people's minds and how they think about that Yeah, is always interesting. Conversation for another day, I guess. Absolutely. Thanks again to Coach Schmidt. Thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, we wish them best of luck moving forward. And Pat, if there's nothing else, we'll wrap this thing up. Yeah. All right, until next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that. Good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.